Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cheese and Pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a record or a film that they find comforting and they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, we'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm talking to the author and journalist Marianne Levy. As well as writing for plenty of newspapers, Marianne works in the field of children's books and has recently written an adult book, a memoir, called Don't Forget to Scream, Unspoken Truths About Motherhood. Marianne has chosen a book for her comfort blanket, the 1989 blockbuster Peter Mayles' A Year in Provence. When we ate, my wife and I thought of previous New Year's days, most of them spent under impenetrable cloud in England. It was hard to associate the sunshine and dense blue sky outside with the 1st of January, but as everybody kept telling us, it was quite normal. After all, we were en Provence. We had been here often before as tourists, and always when we left with peeling noses and regret, we promised ourselves that one day we would live here. And now, somewhat to our surprise, we had done it. So you have chosen a book, which to you is a comfort blanket. And I can't help but notice you have actually brought your copy of it. And it does look like a comfort blanket. It looks like you've chewed it. <laughs> it you've looks like cho- it needs a wash, doesn't yeah. it? I'm going to try and lift it up. I need to be so gentle with it because it, it will actually fall apart. But yes. Do you I have those have... white gloves they have in our archives? I should, shouldn't I? <laughs> this has been so deeply loved. And I, I pulled it off the shelf. Um, I hadn't read it um, for maybe 25 years. Yeah, And we had that rapturous conversation over text <laughs> when you asked me what it was that I was going to do. And when I told you, I got a kind of gasp. Of, I could feel the warmth even over the medium of iMessage. <laughs> this sort of sense of, yes. I think it's a lovely choice. And oh, I think good. it's a lovely choice. I think people will recognise it. And it's a lovely sort of a book as well as a book. So when did you first... Did, oh, obviously, the answer is ages ago, because this book appears to be... It's mainly gas, this book yeah, now. It, it doesn't is. have a spine. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, I should, and I don't quite know why I never bought... Oh, yeah, I can just looking at the spine. is completely cracked. So I, I can actually date fairly precisely when I was reading this. I went back and had a look, and it was published in 1989. Yeah. So I will have been 10 when it was right. published. And I You're don't not think, the target market at 10. Well, no, I wasn't, but... I was reading it when I went on the French exchange at secondary school and I must have been about 14 and I'd already read it and was rereading it because the French exchange was to Avignon, which was in Provence. So this was a huge moment of excitement for me and I had the book with me and I remember kind of reading it on this fairly grim school trip. Um, (laughs) And of course, everyone else was, you know, when you're 40, 13, 14, everyone else was super cool. I remember everyone was very into Red Dwarf and things like that. And like then the I was super cool and Red Dwarf have been in the same sense. Well, I know what you mean. Co- yeah. Nonetheless, <laughs> Red Dwarf is cooler than a year in Provence, <laughs> I, would, I would argue. The, the, the 13 to 14 year old nerd demographic are mainly going for, for, for yeah. Grand Mail, not for Peter Mayle. No, and I remember reading them bits and going, this is so funny, and just getting a kind of, uh, <laughs> 
from them. Smeghead. And then I was in Provence and fairly unhappily in Provence and reading this kind of idealised version of Provence while actually being in Provence and having a <laughs> shitty time. And so it was a comfort blanket in that sense because I knew there was another Provence out there and between <laughs> these covers, even if I wasn't actually experiencing it. So I can date it fairly precisely when I read it and I will have been something like 12, 13 and then really kind of went, did a deep dive at 14. So why did you read it? Was it something your parents had? on the shelf or did someone recommend it to you because these books get passed on yeah this is a very very passed on book i have no idea how i came to start reading it, it how must, strange i don't certainly no one in my life would have said you will enjoy this i mean my nerdy catch 22 red dwarfy type friends were not reading this was it I, i'm trying to remember back being that age i'm being very susceptible around that age for anything that felt grown up that I would pick up a book off my dad's bookshelf that I'd go, this isn't for me, so mm. I'll be reading this. I'm wondering whether, because it's so clearly an adult book. I mean, if you describe what it's about, it's a, it's a guy from the advertising industry who decides to go to Provence and do up a house. Yeah. It is not something for a 10-year-old girl. <laughs> I, looking back, I was into that kind of thing. So when I was eight or nine, I'd sort of read everything at the library and it wasn't a kind of golden age of YA in this country. So there wasn't much so. to go on into. And so I was very into things like James Herriot, oh, right. which is actually not dissimilar. Yes, I think if you're going to say, what is this like to anybody? It's a bit Gerald Durrell. Yep, who it's, I also read. Yep. And I remember that being a really big deal. Yes, you're right. There was a, a gulf. If you were too old for Enid Blyton mm. and you'd finished all the Secret Sevens, and that you're too young for reading, I don't know, whatever you might read next, Jilly Cooper or Ian Fleming or something, mm. Alistair MacLean. Yeah. If you're in that gap, there was nothing serving that. So I, you tended to read things like My Family and Other Animals. And also you say it's not a book for a child, but nothing disturbing happens in it. Yeah. There's no sex, there's no violence, there's no, no, everything is happy all the way through. Yes. There's just no... There's no peril of any kind. There is literally no jeopardy. Even when he's worried that his house won't get fixed, he knows it will get fixed because everyone's lovely. Yes. So in that sense, it was very good for a sort of nervy, displaced teenager who wasn't having a very good time. The sense that there was an adulthood out there of golden, endless summers and cosy winters with big meals. Yeah. You know, three or sometimes four times a day being served. Actually, well, it's, it's quite, quite comforting. It's quite Amy Blightney. It's kind yeah. of it's slap up feasts. It's, yeah. it's ginger beer and picnics. It's got that rhythm of of endless escapist summers. And it's interesting that you read it <laughs> read it on holiday in Provence because one of the things that first struck me about it was it's basically a package holiday. It's a package that contains a holiday. Yeah. You unpack it, and what it's got in it is what's great about a holiday, which is there's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. There's no limits on spending because, hey, it's holiday. We can just mm -hmm. have as many meals as we want to. We can go down the fairground. We, that feeling of like suspension of normal rules that you get as a kid in a holiday, that you can have an ice cream whenever you want. Yeah, It's got the feeling of being on holiday and that carefree endlessness that's really appealing to the extent that even if you're on holiday in the place that it names, you still can use the book to go on holiday within exactly. that holiday. <laughs> exactly. And I carried on reading that book and all the many, many, many books that followed it, every book on the shelf of that kind of book. And it sort of <laughs> spills onto another shelf as I carried on reading books like Driving Over Lemons and A House in Italy. And, you know, there's, there's, it became there's a, a genre, huge, didn't it? It's a huge genre. And, it, and it's still going, I think, on there are, you know, things like Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix is, I think, part of that. Or Parts Unknown is a sort of grittier version of that. But this sense of kind of going away and being immersed somewhere else and yeah. eating and heat and light. My wife, who had never yet been defeated by a menu, had a slice of tarte au citron. The room began to smell of coffee and gitane. And the sun coming through the window turned the smoke blue as it drifted above the heads of three men sitting over thimble-sized glasses of mar. It's a very strange thing as a book because of what you said. There's no peril. There's no plot. There's the loosest of structures in the sense that it's 12 chapters and each one's a month. Mm -hmm. There's broadly a sense that there's a house being done up. Yeah. So there's, it's got the same peril as grand designs. 
which I also love. And, and I, I would say Grand comfort. Designs is more perilous. I, I think I, I find Grand Designs, I watch Grand Designs... To get a panicky. To get, yeah, I get Part a bit three. panicky when they're pouring the concrete and it all goes wrong. And it's not weatherproof, is it? It's, yeah, it's, not, the, not the, without the, the roof's not in. on. Not without the windows. By the time I check on Rob and Ruth's progress, it's almost three years since they started out on this increasingly bonkers scheme. Oh, yeah, or, or <laughs> Kevin's just going to come around and tell you it's going to look like shit. Whereas we know that this is going to look... This I would say this is much less perilous and <laughs> and I've taken and I suppose yeah I've taken this book or its descendants on pretty much every holiday with me since so that if the holiday itself is not going well as you say I've got this An escape hatch <laughs> I can go into this book and sit in the sun and kind of block out my screaming children or the competitive <laughs> Men in my mid-twenties I used to go on these lovely holidays with and actually it was all people having races in the pool and, you know, trying to work out who was the best at everything. But I could read Peter Mayle in the corner and smell the lavender and go, no, actually there is this world in which everything is lovely. And I had a look into it all in the few days as I was rereading it before I was going to chat to you. And a few interesting things come up. Firstly, that he was married three times and I think he's got three or four or five children None of this is mentioned in the book. No. There's absolutely nothing about his personal life. His wife is never mentioned by name. She there's, is my wife. There's a tiny clue in the beginning where he says that in order to get, he's talking about the, the bureaucracy and he, they have to have marriage mm, certificates yeah. and also divorce certificates to show that the marriage certificates were legitimate. And, and you go, hang on, when did, I was flipped back going, did you mention this is your second wife? No, no, no serpent in Eden. There's nothing no. dark. The divorce is, is just a bureaucratic problem. Yes, absolutely. And and he's the easiest man to live with in the world and everything is lovely in the garden. <laughs> the and French are difficult, but he's lovely. Yeah, he's lovely. <laughs> we had been introduced to our new neighbours by the couple from whom we bought the house over a five-hour dinner marked by tremendous goodwill on all sides and an almost total lack of comprehension on our part. The language spoken was French, but it wasn't the French we had heard on cassettes. It was a rich, soupy patois emanating from somewhere at the back of the throat and passing through a scrambling process in the nasal passages before coming out as speech. That by itself wouldn't have been a problem had the words been spoken at normal conversational speed, but they were delivered like bullets from a machine gun, often with an extra vowel tacked on the end for good luck. Fortunately for us, the good humour and niceness of our neighbours were apparent even if what they were saying was a mystery. And actually, I would say that he... He writes very well so that you do believe he's lovely. He, yeah. The jokes he tells against others are nothing as to the jokes he tells against himself. He's, he comes across as very self-deprecating. I mean, he's dead now, so I, I can't ever find out what he was actually like. Well, this is, this is but now, he's, he's now encapsulated in this book. Yeah. There's an interesting thing that he was a, he's an ad man. He comes from advertising. He used to be, he's a contemporary of Alan Parker. And when, when he finally made the, the fictionalised version, it was made to a film, it's Ridley Scott. It's all that gang, those mm. British. They're all sort of born in about 1939 and they sort of ran Adland and he worked for Ogilvy. I think he came up with a nice one Cyril slogan that was used eventually as a football chant. Oh, really? That's one of his things. He's, he's that era. Nice one, Cyril. Nice one, son. And what you realise when you read this is this is an advert for him and his life. This is so well written. Every word is weighed. Oh, you're a copywriter. Yeah. So everything has got the same. It's a little bit like reading. And I'm not saying this in any negative sense. It's a bit like reading the text for one of those Marks and Spencer's adverts. This isn't just Provence. This is hand cut, mm. artisan. It's like reading a really good menu. And, he's, he, and he's good word. at food Brilliant. writing. He's, you know, when and you read people that are like Nigella or Jeffrey Steingarten, actually he's writing he's Nigel Slater. really, he's really, really well. Yeah. Her daughter cleared away, emptied the last of the red wine into our glasses and, unasked, brought another bottle with the cheese. I had to stop after the cheese. So it was serialised in the Sunday Times and they did one extract per month. And of course, it therefore sold bucket loads. And, <laughs> and, and the unfortunate side effect was that it ruined Provence because everyone then moved to Provence. And yeah. then I think he ended up moving to America. To get away from, yeah, all, the from all the people that he'd... Um, but yeah, he it's, sold it's Provence the, so well. It's a theme of the book is that he arrives. He's got a lovely, um, almost a blindness. You have to sort of read between the lines, the blindness to... He's moved out there and he's not an immigrant or a migrant. He's not even an expat. He's Peter Mayle. Mm. He's got this beautiful house. And then he starts moaning that everyone wants to come and visit. 
And they've constantly got people. After a while, I thought, are these people you know? Are they strangers? It almost feels like he's running a hotel because mm. constantly more and more Les Anglais keep turning up mm. and all the French are raising their eyebrows at the behaviour of the, the English people moaning about the toilets and things. And he's observing the English and going, oh, aren't the English weird? And you go, but you're one of them. Mm. But he immediately goes native and yeah. becomes part of Provence and is then sort of... Or at least that's what he tells us. He tells yeah. us that he's been absolutely accepted and, and, and we at, believe it. And, and at the same time goes, well, by the end of the first year, I hadn't learned a single word of French. And you go, <laughs> oh, you've got that lovely English thing of going like, like a real... Weirdly, this is a very, very middle-class uh, advertising-funded uh, level of this. This is the Costa Brava. This is Sexy Beast. This is what Brits do. They mm. move to a bit of another country. They move in there and go, well, this is mine now. And it's very strange. It's got that in it. Mm. right to its bones but it's so charmingly written and you so believe him and i think that is down to him being from advertising he has got the ability to use words to persuade you of everything it was an inspiration we fixed a date for the last sunday before christmas and sent out the invitations champagne from 11 o'clock onwards within two days the cement mixer was back Didier and his assistants resumed where they'd left off, as though there had never been a three-month hiatus. No excuses were made, and no direct explanation given for the sudden return to work. The closest Didier came to it was when he mentioned casually that he wanted to have everything finished before he went skiing. And humour. He's so funny. And I thought, again, you know, I'd not read it for years and years and years, and I came back to it this week... And it's really funny. It's three men in a boat level funny. It, a which again, there's no idle, idle thoughts yeah. of an idle fellow, Jerome K. Jerome kind of thing. But, and that and that sounds like we're doing it down. And actually, it's I I think it's very fine comic writing, and it makes it so readable. I think so readable. He became aware that passing motorists were waving at him. So he waved to them. How friendly the French had become. He thought. He was some miles up the autoroute before he realised that the back of the car was burning set on fire by the discarded cigar butt. With what he thought was tremendous presence of mind, he pulled onto the hard shoulder, stood up on the front seat, and urinated into the flames. And that was when the police had found him. It is oddly in the key of, in the best sense, Richard Curtis sending uh, Colin Firth to do his book in Love Actually with the wonderful sort of uh, French setting around it and the Portuguese maid and the confusions. It's got that sort of bumbling Hugh Grantiness With a bit of a lower low. Good morning. Sort of surrounded yeah. by characters from a lower low. But you... somehow you don't, you don't hate him for having characterised everyone no. like that. He called that evening. Are you pleased with the table? Yes, the table is, is wonderful, but there is a problem. Have you put it up yet? No, uh, that's the problem. Did he have any helpful suggestions? A few pairs of arms, he said. Think of the pyramids. Of course. All we needed were 15,000 Egyptian slaves and it would be done in no time. I thought, looking back, I thought, you know, I'm going to come back to this now and I'm going to really suck my teeth and this is going to (laughs) be problematic and embarrassing. And maybe... It is, but I didn't find it so. I think actually it stands the test. Of, there's He's a bit lascivious towards young women, but otherwise it stands the test of time pretty, pretty well, I think. He likes a pretty student. He does like a pretty student. And, and oh, and it's illustrated. That's the other thing. Yes. There's an illustration of a pretty student. I remember the particular page. <laughs> Again, more books should be illustrated. More books for yes. adults should be illustrated with lovely line drawings, I'm I think. I'm with Alice from Alice in Wonderland. What good is a book without pictures? Mm. It does help. I think it's better because it's got pictures, but he's constantly painting these incredibly vivid mm. pictures. And I think what this is a demonstration of is the craft of writing. Yeah. Because if there was a plot, if there was jeopardy, if something even happened, I'd understand what he was doing. But nothing happens. And it's just, he casts a spell. It's, tw- it's a short book, 12 chapters, each one about the length of a Sunday Times extract. So yeah. it's like reading, it's like sitting down and having a nice cup of tea, like doing the crossword. It takes yeah. about that long to reach each, read each chapter. And at the end of each one of them, he's done a little tiny thumbnail sketch of something that either happened or he invented mm. that feels convincing. And all he's got to sell you it is the words he chooses. Yeah. Thick slice of white butter to dab on the saucisson and bread. And I was admiring the, the, the food writing. And, and I, st- I stopped and thought, hang on, every time he... He talks about food. I can taste it. Yeah. And all he's doing is carefully not choosing to use too many words. So what he says is, and delicious black olives. Mm. And instead of me going, oh, 
I go, oh, I've imagined the platonic ideal of a black olive because you haven't put any other words around mm. it. You go, black olive. Oh, I remember tasting a black olive once. It was really nice. So it'll be that good a black olive. Yeah. It's not like a shit menu where it's all full of adjectives and adverbs. It's really minimal. Madame's daughter bought the first course and explained that it was a light meal today because of the heat. She put down an oval dish covered with slices of saucisson and cured ham, with tiny gherkins, some black olives and grated carrots in a sharp marinade. The sparseness of the descriptions actually means that you project into it the best meals you've ever had. Yes. And it's the absence of detail sometimes that really makes it sing. And I think that's a real skill. And again, that's a copywriter skill. That's what you put on the outside of the box above the word serving suggestion. He's really good at it. Salad arrived, the lettuce slick with dressing, and with it noodles in tomato sauce and slices of roast loin of pork, juicy in a dark onion gravy. We tried to imagine what Madame would serve up in the winter when she wasn't toying with these light meals. I can understand how you could describe, this is travel writing, Mm. how you describe a beautiful view. But weirdly, that doesn't get to you in the way that a describer meal does. Because the synesthesia. And the moment he brings in smell or taste, or even sound a little bit, suddenly you're there. Mm. When he's describing the sights of it, he very rarely talks about a view over a valley. He- no, and there's there's a joke actually in there's a very good joke which I can sort of remember, which is in one of the summer sections where he overhears an elderly English couple looking at the view from his beautiful village, <laughs> and somebody's and one and the woman says something like, "What a wonderful view!" and the husband says, "Yes, most impressive for such a small village." <laughs> and you get the joke, and you get it was a lovely view, yeah. and you kind of get the summeriness, and you get that it's his on some level because yeah. it's in, you're getting so much wrapped up even as you're laughing it's all done with the, the it's the sparsity of the language it's mm. not florid no bear in mind there's nothing happening you think what he'd do and you know it's because you're a writer the first temptation when you're a writer is to go i've got to write i've got to give good value for money mm. so here's some tenpenny words and some 50p words and here's some big one pound words i'll use all of those and give value to my readers and he is a man of such experience that he knows that what you need to do is just choose the right words not the most words or the biggest words as I came up, he extended a cold, horny hand. Bonjour. He unscrewed a cigarette butt from the corner of his mouth and introduced himself. Masso, Antoine. He was dressed for war. A stained camouflage jacket, a bandolier of cartridges and a pump-action shotgun. His face was the colour and texture of a hastily cooked steak, with a wedge of nose jutting out above a ragged nicotine-stained moustache. Nevertheless, there was a certain mad amiability about him. I asked him if his hunting had been successful. Uh, fox, he said. But uh, too old to eat, he shrugged. Anyway, he said, he won't be keeping my dogs awake at night. And I would say that I come from his team because my first sort of big writing jobs were in fact as a continuity announcer. So I used to introduce television programmes and I would only have... 9.5 9.5 seconds. So I never had very many words either. So yeah. my writing is instinctively... It's I don't like know haiku. It's, yeah, it's, it's you've, you've, you've like... got to get these six things things across and you've got to say them in absolutely minimalist language. And actually, it, I don't think there's much of a crossover, but I'm really into Sondheim, mm. who is again well, lyrics so are the same. precise. Lyrics are the same. So precise. You've got restrictions. And I think mm. that one of the things... I'm a big fan. I looked this up when I started trying to write novels and and, and proper like proper books the length of books that are people's favorite books you're always told by a by an agent whatever it's got to be 70,000 80,000 mm. words look up the books that are regularly the top 5 top 10 favorite books of people they're very rarely 400 pages long they're the number of great books that people love and take with them for the rest of their lives Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 984. Or uh, funny books as well. Funny yeah. books are generally very short, aren't they? And people love them. It's the weird thing. Mm. Whenever you talk to agents and people in publishing, they go, people don't like comedy books. They don't like uh, comic novels. And I went, what about this list of the most beloved books of all time containing mm. Ho Jeeves and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah. and uh, Winnie the Pooh? They're all short. They're all memorable. And you can lend them to someone and know they can read them in an afternoon. Yeah. Because that's a generous act. Yes. And your books, your, your hugely successful books are tiny. Oh, yeah, they're, but because they're again, you've, but you've got to get that joke onto the page. You've got one page. You've got you know yeah. a sentence, maybe two. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's. I think it's miniatures are a really uh, underrated thing that I've yeah. often said that if I sort of look at sometimes at great big, I'm a lazy reader. Sometimes I look at great big books and go, "Is this four times as good as Heart of Darkness?" Mm. Because genuinely, uh, I don't know, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, they're all quite short, yeah, and they're really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I could just reread that. <laughs> so I'd read, the, I'd read four of those. I'd, yeah, this is um, where I say on tape that I didn't finish Wolf Hall. I and you know, and similarly, I've got a copy of. Freedom by Jonathan Franzen that will never leave the house because it's too enormous to carry anywhere we're, we're and therefore I will never read it. We're sitting in my, my bookshelf room and you'll notice that bookmarks are near the back of almost all those books unless they're small. Mm. Um, and I think there's a great thing in a small book, as in there's a great craft in writing a short, effective book. And there's a great craft in the short story. And this book, the Peter Mail book, mm. because it's in 12 chunks, is so easy to read because you can take it in small bites. Yeah. It's incredibly friendly for travel reading, for reading when you're going to be distracted. Yeah, you've you, got a baby and you can, you've can. Oh. you got something that will last the length of a feed. You can, that's that's your 30 yeah. minute, yeah, your it 30 feels, minute read. Yeah, It does feel like that Fran Laurie sketch. Well, yes, it seems to me with, with the pace of modern life being what it is, most people just haven't got time to spend on long poems. And, and therefore, this is something that would ideally suit uh, the short haul commuter or the busy housewife uh, and leave plenty of time over for other sporting and leisure activities. Well, that uh, represents quite a boon. Oh, an enormous boon. Well, we're always on the lookout for enormous boons. <laughs> but that's not bullshit. People are busy. People are easily distracted. Your phone... I always joke saying that sometimes I'm convinced that I read a book by putting the book on my lap and then looking at my phone for a long time and the book will go in through my knees. Um, <laughs> you're so easy to distract. Yeah. There's something really lovely about a small, friendly book that breaks up into little chunks. Yeah. And actually, I think the other sort of big, sort of big thought with capital B, capital T is... This book is doing Instagram pre-Instagram. Yes. I suddenly thought all these beautifully depicted scenes, all this sort of endless chat about food, the endless talk, which I love. I should say it's endless. It's wonderful. I, I, I like it that it's without end. <laughs> the, the, the sun-warmed stone. I look at my Instagram now to get the... I'm chasing the feeling yeah. that he gives me between these pages. And I wonder... I mean, he, he left us pre-Instagram, I would love to know what his Instagram would have looked He would have like. immediately, this is the next is, medium yeah, for it. Yeah, exactly. But and it I, has, you know, it's sort of the forefather of all of this stuff. <laughs> but it has that in common with, uh, if you're talking about a comfort book, television that does this is really comforting. People do turn to it, especially during lockdown. Mm. The number of people who said, oh, I just watched property shows. Yeah. I just watched Escape to the Sun. I watched things. Uh, I wanted to watch uh, Death in Paradise. I wanted to watch a detective yeah. thing, but it needed to be set somewhere beautiful. And it's sort of sneered at. But actually, hang on, you might need this. This is a, a thing yeah. that it services a need and a, a seemingly a very human need to go somewhere untroubled. Yes. With a very, very low stakes. Provence under blanket of snow, shouted the headline of our local newspaper. Our valley had been quiet during the cold days of January, but now snow had added an extra layer of silence. We had the Luberon to ourselves, eerie and beautiful. It was so still that, as Massa observed later, you could have heard a mouse fart. The novelty of being marooned in the middle of a picturesque sea was, during the day, a great pleasure. We walked for miles, we ate enormous lunches, and we stayed warm. But at night, even with fires and sweaters, the chill came up from the stone floors and out of the stone walls. It was time to stop pretending we were in a subtropical climate and give in to the temptations of central heating. One of the things that's happened to it since it being written is now you're not just visiting a foreign place, you're visiting a time that's gone. This is well, now set in the past. And it's and there's a bit in it where they talk about entering the common market, which <laughs> squeezed my heart hey. and how everything was going to be different because everything's still priced in francs in the yeah. book and the sort of sense that life is about to change. You sort of read in 2022 and go, oh God. But, but that, that sort of sense of optimism and the future unspooling. <laughs> What happens to travel writing is yeah. you start to, after a while, when a travel book becomes a certain age, you're not just, if you read like Patrick Lee Firm or something now, you're not just reading the uh, stuff about the Greek mountains, you're reading about what it was like in the war. Mm. And you preserve in a, in a little, sort of like a jar, like a, like a pickle, mm. um, the, the feelings of, of the late 80s. And also the, it preserves as well the feelings that the Brits had towards the continent. In a way that we got far more casual about travelling to the continent in yeah. the sort of 20 years after this. And now maybe it'll seem exotic again. Now we're sort of separate. Now we've, yeah. we've 
attach the motors to Britain and we're motoring off into the North Sea. But it, it does feel like a little portrait of a time that's gone as well. So you can sort of forgive it its occasional parochialisms because you go, oh, this is how the Brits used to look at the French. Yes. This is how the French used to look at us. It's exciting to see how alien we seem to each other, which is, I think is a forgotten thing. Yeah, the sense of abroad being this yeah. sort of place that... that is unusual and... Abroad in the carry-on abroad sense. Yes, well, um, and this hotel doesn't seem to be quite finished. Not finished? Oh, it's nothing. A little bit of building to finish. Four or five floors, maybe that's so. Uh, oh, you're going somewhere that unfamiliar with, but yeah. crazy things are going to happen. Although I do, I, I, you know, having sort of, wherever we are in the pandemic, I, I hesitate to say coming out of it, but I've got a sense of that again. Now, as you say, yeah. sort of watching all this stuff, reading all this stuff in lockdown, and it becomes tremendously exciting again to even think about going somewhere where the plug sockets are a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> I want a word with you. Mr. Farkyhouse, if it's for complimenting on breakfast, it was nothings. Oh, you're so right, it was nothings. <laughs> Actually, of course, it's not true in real life that your problems do follow you when you yeah. go away. But but hence taking the book and having it as this kind of thing where they don't exist. No, no one's problems exist. This is a in fantasy. This, this, yeah. It is. I mean, it's a beautiful thing because it's a, ostensibly realistic and it's essentially someone's observations of it but through a lens that makes it a sheer fantasy. The heat outside was like a blow on the skull, and the road back to the house was a long mirage, liquid and rippling in the glare. It was an afternoon for the pool and the hammock, a rare afternoon without builders or guests, and it seemed to pass in slow motion. The other thing I was worried about is that it would feel incredibly middle class. And of course... Yes, it is. Yes. I mean, yes, it is. I mean, it's insanely. And when I say middle class, I mean, <laughs> it's middle class, middle class. I mean, I'm middle yeah. class, but I'm not this middle class. I recognise nothing from this world. But what it has got, which is it got in common with Grand Designs and all those property programmes, is it is amazing to read about someone who is not worried about money. Yeah. It is amazing to read someone who's decided on a whim to do something that we all fantasise about, which is, let's just go somewhere else. What about the money? I'm not going to mention it. Actually, well, he does mention it. I would point out that he often says how much cheaper everything is than London. <laughs> yeah, he's often, and of course, I can't now work out how much way. <laughs> the meals would now cost because he gives you all the prices in francs. But of course, this is 1989 prices in francs, and that that yeah, involves it means nothing. That means nothing anymore. But he does constantly say, you know, I bought people dinner for six, and it cost the same as it would have cost for two people to yeah. have a smart lunch in Fulham. But it's which a makes me think that again. also he wasn't worried about money when he was in London, so it, yeah. it doesn't quite translate over. But it does there. Therefore, feel if I happened to find myself in Provence, this lifestyle would somehow be attainable. Also, yes. because all the farm workers are eating these amazing meals, yeah. there's a terrific work-life balance going on. He's not working, yeah. but everyone around him is working very hard. But we're not worried about them because they're taking two-hour lunch breaks and partying all weekend. But it's got the same feeling of pure escape that you get out of reading P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah, as in there's occasional mentions. I'm a bit bit light on 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 the old oof. But, but it doesn't, it's not real. No one's no. in real trouble. Um, the phrase that Simon Cain came out with, the chink of departing coin is absolutely absent. Mm. This is a world where he's done very well. It's a total fantasy and it's based on a fantasy I think lots of us have, which is I would like to not worry about money for a bit. I'd like mm. to go somewhere where everything was affordable, where even if you're a poor peasant, your quality of life was excellent. Yeah. So you felt no guilt about it. I'd like to go somewhere I don't have to work. There was that, that philosophical experiment where a philosophy professor said to his students, what would you do tomorrow to make you happy if you could do anything. And they mm. named the things they wanted to do. And they said, so what's stopping you? And they all said, money. And he said, well, that's the answer. That's what's stopping you living your best life is you're worrying about money. Mm. So by removing any worry about money, and the situation Peter Mayles in here is beautifully bizarre in that he's been an advertising guy and done very well at advertising. And then he's written some best-selling novelty toilet books. And he wrote the Wicked Willy books with Greg mm. Jolliffe, another mate from the same scene. So he's made his fortune out of something really daft and gone, I could just go and not worry about money for a bit. Mm. And that, I think, is a fantasy. So yeah. there is a fantasy in this. You go, oh, God, imagine if I'd written some books about a talking penis and could go and live in Provence. Yeah. He's allowing you that fantasy of what if I didn't have to work? Because the thing that's missing from it, he's not working on the land and farming hard. He's watching people do that. Mm. And what a fantasy to go. What would your day be like if you were somewhere beautiful and didn't have to do anything? That's holiday. He's yeah. just on holiday. And it's the ultimate middle class fantasy, which is to have enough property and enough assets to not worry about the flow of cash. And he's also doing a thing, I think, simultaneously where he's, it feels quite, I don't know whether it is, but it 
feels quite morally wholesome. So you think about, <laughs> but you think about, you know, you look at the lives of people who win the lottery and they go and they buy the biggest possible house yeah. and then they spend, you know, all this money on Dior bags or fast cars or whatever. And then they get divorced and they're bankrupt and everything's awful. And he hasn't done that. He's done the thing. I had a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about what we would do if we were really rich. Yeah. And we both said to each other, what would stop you just like having all the money in your current account and like not investing it, but just having loads of takeaways, yeah. just kind of carrying on as you are, but that's without the, the stress. And that's sort of what he's done. You don't get the sense that he's bought a huge mansion. You don't no. get the sense that he's chasing status symbols. The status symbol is sort of him and this sort of beautiful simplicity of his life, yeah, which he- again feels quite... As sort of gently and wholesomely aspirational. Yes, I it's think. not vulgar. It's no. incredibly. I mean, the point is that he's selling this lifestyle. You're joining in a simpler world where people have different pace. The other thing I noticed about it being a fantasy is there's a fantasy of money isn't a problem. So you can't hear chink, 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 mm-hmm. chink. The other thing you can't hear is tick, 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 tick. No. He's outside time. Yeah. There's a lovely bit towards the end where he talks about his watch being in a drawer. Yeah. And as an ad man and a man from this era, his watch would have been a status symbol. Yeah. He would have carried it around. And it would have been when he has to go to meetings, when he has to meet clients. And his watch has been in a drawer. He said, I've lived for a year without socks and my watch is in mm. a drawer. And I tell the time by the moving of shadows. And for most people, certainly most working people, the fancy of time not being an issue is a dream because everyone's on the clock. Well, and have you... Have you read Oliver Berkman's book, The 4,000 Weeks? No. That's doing very, very well. And he talks a lot about time and how time became something that we saw passing um, because of the Industrial Revolution. Yes. That before that, you wouldn't, it wouldn't occur. There's always stuff that needs to be done and there's always time in which you there's would do it. There's a morning and an afternoon. But, you know, there's not the sense, <laughs> but there's not the sense that time is a commodity. That, that happened yeah. when you put hundreds of thousands of people into a factory and you needed them all to be working at the same time on a specific thing. Yeah. And so he talks a lot about Therefore We Live, which hugely resonated with me. And I think must have been a problem, especially when I was a teenager, you know, working for GCSEs and things like that, being very, very stressed, that you're always working towards some kind of future in which you will be relaxed and happy. If yeah. I can just get X, Y and Z yes. done, then I will be okay. And his point is you never will. Yeah. So embrace the fact that you are mortal and you're never going to tick off everything on your to-do list and then start living in the now knowing that time is finite yeah. and then you can actually relax and start to enjoy your life. And that's what Peter Mayle's done. He yes. took off his watch and he's living in the now. And and Beautiful. and I can't do that, but I can read about, well, I can try to do it, but I can read about him doing it. That's really strange. And it's you're, lovely. You're having it as a sort of as a second-hand experience. Mm. You're, it is, I mean, I keep using the word fantasy. It is a fantasy. This should be in a fantasy book. This should be next to Tolkien and things. This is about <laughs> an absolute human fantasy. He lives in a, a place that's out of time. Not only is time not ticking, he's not got any appointments, no meetings, but also it appears to be set sort of slightly in the past. The mm. ways are simpler. Everything's made of stone. It's very permanent. Connection to the land, the yeah. terroir that everyone talks yes. about. They're so connected to the land and the landscape and the rhythms, sort of ancient rhythms of the vines and, and things a- like which sounds awful, <laughs> but it's not when you read it. It's lovely. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm always amazed 
when people haven't been infected by a bit of this. Because I, yeah. like, I learned to drive when I was, I, so I passed my test when I was pretty much nine months pregnant with my daughter, not driven since. And the only <laughs> reason I wanted to be able to drive, the kind of thing that I held in my head was that at some point I will drive myself round the south of France right. from antiques markets <laughs> to food markets to a little village wherever because I still believe that someday I'll get to do that. And I, I've never managed it. I've never had this kind of golden, relaxed experience. And I've never been on holiday with anyone else who is chasing it. Clearly, there are millions of people out How there strange. like me who believe in it. But for whatever reason, I've never quite managed to intersect. My husband is, isn't like this. He Is it because it's over the horizon? Is it because I don't know. The, I'm wondering how this book works. It's, it's, it's a package. It's a package of comfort. It contains within it someone's... I mean, again, you're right. You don't read it and go, oh, he was a billionaire. You read it and go, this appears to be almost within reach. It reads to me like most of broadsheet journalism does. Yeah. It reads to me, goes, this is a lifestyle, a slightly luxury, slightly probably better off than I am lifestyle that's just slightly out of reach. Mm. And I could get it if I got lucky or I worked a little bit harder or whatever. But you're right. It's really strange that it, it sits where retirement sits in your head. Like at yeah. some point you'll get to do it. And the question is always, which is what he's asking, why don't you do it just now? Yeah. And the answer to why don't you do it just now is you, if you do it now, you ruin Peter Mayo's life by turning up in Provence <laughs> and wrecking Provence. Which many people um, did. But so my husband is immune to this, for example. Really? You know, we'll go on holiday to the south of France, a place I've made us go many times because of this book. And, you know, I'll say, can <laughs> we go cos and... Peter Mayle cosplay holiday. Essentially, <laughs> yes. And I'll say, Luna, can we just take a moment to sniff this lavender or can we look just go and look at some cheese or taste the honey? Raise some goats. And I get the sense that he's like, I mean, yeah, but it's not, it's not got a hook into his soul in a way that it has mine. Maybe it's because you've lived with it all your life, but maybe, maybe, maybe. this has sat with you. What what interests me is it sits with you as a place you can go and a place you can go even when you're in the actual place. Mm. That within Provence, the reality of Provence is you went there when you were a teenager and it wasn't as good as he said. No. So this book is a fantasy. It only exists within that place. It's You're aware that it exists like Camelot. It's a thing mm. that you can aspire to. And maybe it's not a place you need to go, but a, an attitude, a, a place of mind or a, a spirit. It just says calm. I don't know you're yeah. an anxious person. I'm a person who suffers from anxiety. Very, very anxious, yeah. Reading books like this says, imagine a time where you went. I know what I'd be like. I'd get there and I'd find things to bloody do. I yeah. wouldn't be able to relax and, and, and just eat the cheese. I would be fussing around the kitchen. Well, and also he's very relaxed about his house being renovated because everyone is so charming and they're yeah. always having dinners. I wouldn't be relaxed about <laughs> having that level of renovation. It would kill me. I mean, we've talked many times about the, my great and deep joy that there is nothing that needs doing to the place I'm going to live and I am never going to leave it because the sense of even, you know, the tiniest building job makes me feel sick. But in his world, it's okay. It's a joyful that? thing. Do you get that from, I, I bring back to Grand Designs again. I mm. watch Grand Designs and I watch it for two things. One, I go, oh, I wish I had so much money I could do that. And I watch it and go, I'm really glad I'm not doing that. Mm. I'm really glad I'm not so mentally ill I think I need to do that. And I watch it and I at the end of it, I don't go, oh, I'm so jealous of those people. I go, oh, God, I'm glad I didn't do that. Yeah, huge. And I don't even have your jealousy. I think I, I just think, thank God I don't have the money to do that. And I remember there was one recently where they had, because I'm big, I'm very into outdoor swimming. Yes. And there was one where they, they made a wild swimming pond and it cost them, oh God, I saw it was that something one. like it was, 80 grand. It was really some, stressful for a puddle. It, it was a, like such it. a stressful puddle. And they had it ungated <laughs> and they had toddlers running. The whole thing made me feel ill. And it was quite, you know, it was lovely. Welcome to Anxiety Park. Exactly. And I came away from it going, my pond where I swim in costs £30 a month. And... And someone else manages it and no one's going to fall in. And I feel so grateful and blessed. And I've, I felt very calmed by it because it wasn't my problem. I, so, yeah. I Is there a thing with, with this lifestyle stuff or I have lifestyle? I'm, I'm, I'm lumping in broadsheet lifestyle stuff, fashion supplements, cookery mm. supplements, Nigella, travel shows and stuff that you sort of watch it. And I watch Mortar and Whitehouse go fishing mm -hmm. and I'm never going fishing. Yeah. I have no interest in going fishing. I watch cookery shows and I've got a repertoire of six things I can cook. I'm not really interested in doing it. But what you're getting from it is a sense of sort of a packaged down feeling of what it would feel to be at home in these places, to be doing yeah. these projects. And with the, the Peter Mayle book, it's 
as you've pointed out brilliantly, that's not what it's like in Provence. And my dad, when he was really stressed at work when I was a kid, going to walking up a hill or on holiday and talking to the shepherd, he went, I'm fed up at work. I want to go and find out what it's like to be a shepherd. So he walked up the hill and talked to the shepherd and he came back down and said, what was it like? He said, he said it's really stressful. He said, sheep are pricks. They keep falling over. They get diseased. One day you've got 400 sheep. Next day you've got two. He said, it's really hard. The common market's really hard to deal with. He said, it sounds like the most stressful job in the world. This book is a bit like that lovely word in the meaning of lift about the minimum distance that sheep look picturesque. Mm. This lifestyle looks amazing through the filter of Peter Mayle. Mm. If you were really doing up a house in the south of France and dealing with impossible, shrugging Frenchmen, you'd go mad. Mm. But what's packaged in this book is the experience of all that relaxation without you having to do it. Mm. <laughs> the experience he's describing is something you could fantasise about and would want and would desire. But the reality of it isn't in there. In, in, mm. in the same way as the divorce isn't in there. Yeah. It's hinted at, so it's not set in a fantasy world that doesn't exist, that isn't relatable. But it's not stressed. Yeah. He's, again, the classic ad man. He's put the bad ingredients in very small type. Mm. And the big ingredients are the headline. And you can say, oh, apparently it's made with, uh, with, with a pure, uh, pure meadow honey. Mm. And it's just that. And then the, the, e, the E numbers and the things that will give you asthma are in very small type at the bottom. Yeah. He's removed it all and it's filtered. So you, I think the reason you haven't run off and done this is because I think you know that it's not, this isn't set in Provence. It's set in Peter Mayle's mind. Mm. And you're aware that the only way to go there is to read the book. Mm. And and I carry on reading. You know, I've read Toujours Provence, the next one. I've read his, you know, I've, I've got them all. And they get less good as you go on. Um, right. the, yeah, yeah, the fiction is, is, is not good. But I read it <laughs> because I'm still in his universe. And and it's interesting, I think, that, that he left Provence. So clearly... Yeah, he knows even, it's not there. He, he knows it's not there. He didn't live this. He lived something else. It's just we don't know what it was that he lived. Before Monsieur Menicusi and his jackhammer arrived, we were expecting one last guest, a man so maladroit and disaster-prone, so consistently involved in household accidents, that we had specifically asked him on the eve of demolition so that the debris of his visit could be buried under the rubble of August. It was Bennett, a close friend for 15 years, who cheerfully admitted to being the world's worst guest. We loved him, but with apprehension. What you're celebrating then, which is really good for you because you're a writer, is you're celebrating not Provence, but the magic of writing. I like that, yeah. Because what you're saying is that, that the raw material, you're probably quite aware. I forgot that you read it in Provence. Mm. The raw material isn't this. It's been through a process. And maybe that's why the books sort of are diminishing returns, is that this appears to be effortless, which is another one of the fantasies, I think. I read mm. this and go, oh, God, you're an effortlessly good writer. I'm jealous of that. This appears to not be hard work. And the story about how he got the book, where he just wrote a letter. Mm, I wonder if that's true. I would love it's to know. It's beautiful. Isn't it? Do you tell, want to tell the story? No, you tell the story. Actually, you tell sorry. it's good. Um, he went to, he did the classic thing. Again, this is very Colin Firth love, actually. He went to buy his place in Provence and said to his agent, uh, I'll go away and I'll write a novel. Like we all think, you need to be in the right house to write a novel with the right view, <laughs> you need the right pens, the right notebook, all that stuff you do to put off doing your homework. Mm. I'm going to be in Provence and I'll write my great novel. And after six months there, or whatever it was, uh, he wrote to his agent, he wrote a letter saying why he hadn't written his novel. And the answer was, because the French are impossible and it's all too picturesque and I've gone a bit mad. And his agent just said, write another few hundred thousand words of this and that's a book. Mm. So what it is, it's a letter. And it's not like, not like it's a love letter to Provence. It's a letter to someone. It's a round robin. It's a, we've had quite a year, mm. which is the most effortless thing because it's just someone talking to you. And, and it's someone yeah. telling anecdotes. It's someone making their life into anecdotes, turning their life into the most entertaining version to keep a friend amused. And he obviously can do that effortlessly. Maybe when he started to try to do it, yeah. it lost the magic. And there's an interesting story. Um, was it Hamish Hamilton who first published it? Anyway, whoever it was who first took a punt on the book, they lined up a dinner with him and something like eight key booksellers Right. And he was so charming and wonderful over the dinner that they all backed it and pushed Aww. it further. Which makes me think that 
even if the world wasn't real and even if it wasn't real when he was in it, he could absolutely project this world himself. He could conjure it up simply over a dinner table. A lot of people who are very valued by our society are great anecdotalists. Mm. Uh, a comedian friend of mine was asked on a panel show and she sort of phoned up and said, can you write me some anecdotes? And I said, you can't write anecdotes. She went, but I haven't got any. And I went, nonsense, of course you have. And I thought, oh, I haven't got any anecdotes either. Because all my stories involve my family who people don't know or mm. I don't want to share that bit of story. Or it's a bit messy. It hasn't got any narrative shape to it. And then you realise that the people who can tell anecdotes, they're storytellers. I don't think the anecdotes are true. No. They're just, there's an incredibly valued skill in our society to become a really good chat show guest because I don't think any of the stories are true. They've got a germ of truth in them. It's mm. like being a stand-up. It's not, yeah. it's not really you. It's a version of you. And this is a book by, I imagine, a terrific guy down the pub a great guy for go for dinner with because he turns raw material into colourful anecdotes. Yes, it's yes. And, and I've talked with people before about how things like Three Men in a Boat is actually, <laughs> you know, it's little stand-up sets oh, yeah, threaded totally. together. And there's there's an element of that to this. I don't think it's quite, the comedy's not quite so dense. No. But it, yeah. it's working on that same kind of drawing board, isn't it? It's, it's, it's someone telling you of, an amusing story yeah. about what happened to them. I mean, Three Men in a Boat, I recommend to anyone who wants to, it's, alongside Diary of a Nobody, it's the greatest example that our sense of humour hasn't changed in 200 years because mm. it just reads modern. And Three Men in a Boat opens with the routine that any stand-up could do about if you read a medical dictionary, within five minutes you've got all the diseases. Mm. With me, it was my liver that was out of order. I knew it was my liver that was out of order because I'd just been reading a patent liver pill circular in which were detailed the various symptoms by which a man could tell when his liver was out of order. I had them all. It is a most extraordinary thing, but I never read a patent medicine advertisement without being impelled to the conclusion that I am suffering from the particular disease therein dealt with in its most virulent form. That's a great stand-up routine. Yeah. Billy Connolly could do that. It's great. Yeah, and just because this is so safe and so cuddly, it's <laughs> yeah. actually really funny. And yes. I was laughing out loud. And he does all the things where he'll turn something on its head or he'll do a little twist or he'll pull the carpet out from underneath you. He's doing all the really good comedy writing tricks and it's the anti-edgy so we don't yeah. give him which is hence my teenage friends sneering at me yeah. because it's not cool but that doesn't make it less funny and it's sold millions it's all you know i mean i'm looking at this one it's got sold five hundred thousand copies on its incredibly battered cover and this is from what 1990 or something how many well, is yours I've got, sold i've got a new edition here and it is uh the 44th imprint <laughs> Uh, that was from two thousand. From two thousand, yeah, it was huge. I remember. I, I remember this book. You talk about booksellers. I remember. I worked in bookselling for only ten years, mm. and we used to shovel this onto the shelf from a wheelbarrow. It would just always mm. sell. And I think because it had a ready market, it was the perfect thing to take on holiday. And friends told friends, told friends, yeah. told friends. It's a great word of mouth book. No one is going to resent being given this. You'll like it or you won't like it. Yeah. But you won't go. Oh God, it took me weeks to read. <laughs> And you don't see it, or certainly you didn't used to see it hugely in charity shops. I think people did hold on to them. I don't think yeah. they, it wasn't a sort of 50 shades of grey, people read it and then chucked it out. I think, I, I hope that people still have a copy kind of <laughs> knocking around somewhere that they can go back to. It's making me think I might buy another one. Now I've seen how nice yours looks. <laughs> before read before it. your one just, just finally turns to dust. Yeah. Well, it's been exposed to that warm, beautiful Provencal sun, hasn't it, Joe? It's a bit it's been basted in suntan lotion. <laughs> yeah. And you, the Mistral has blown <laughs> through it. It's, and it's spotted with delicious peppery olive oil. <laughs> This is a fantasy book. It's about mm. a fantasy of a lifestyle that you might want or aspire to, and he's trying to sell it to you. Okay, mm. add man, I'm in. I'm in. And you'd be solid. But you haven't moved to Provence. No. Because I think you know that this isn't a fantasy of how brilliant it is to move to Provence. This is a fantasy about what it's like to be brilliant at writing, because you can turn mm. nothing into your spinning straw into gold. It was only a few minutes past noon. <laughs> But the Provencal has a clock in his stomach. And lunch is his sole concession to punctuality. On mange à midi, and not a moment later. Each table had its white paper cover and two unlabeled bottles of wine from the Bonnier Cooperative 200 yards away. There was no written menu. Madame cooked lunch from Monday to Friday, and customers ate what she decided they would. 
Most of the other customers seemed to know each other, and there were some spirited and insulting exchanges between the tables. An enormous man was accused of slimming. He looked up from his plate and stopped eating long enough to growl. I was reading one of the food passages in this, and I thought there was a magic trick going on in that he was describing the food, and it was just a lump of cheese or something. I thought, oh, my God, I can taste it in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Was it and, the goat's cheese and herbs? And it was yeah. that. You know, even just that phrase, you're going, he's chosen the right words to describe it, and it's put in the right place in the sentence, and it's, it's come out of a description of him having had fresh air and got hungry. And all those uh, associative, synesthetic things have happened to set me up to go, that's nice. And I thought, shit, it's like the Eucharist. You've done a magic trick and now I've got food in my mouth. And it's just a demonstration brilliantly of, of what writers and particularly, again, I keep saying this, advertising people can do, mm. which is they can make your mouth water mm. with words. And it's actually a demonstration of how brilliant it is to be a writer. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Certainly, I came quite late to the realisation that I mean, and this is obviously a fiction, but it would come in under the non-fiction category. Yeah. And it it took me a very long time to realise that non-fiction was what probably rocks my world <laughs> more than fiction, because yeah. that's not a fashionable thing to say. It tends to be said by quite angry men. <laughs> oh, I don't want to read that because it's made up. I yeah. don't want to read about things that happen to people in the SAS. And actually, of course, <laughs> you know, as a podcaster, as much as anything, that narratively, non-fiction has just as much going on for yeah. it storytelling-wise as fiction does. Yeah, everything's and, you know, structure. You've exactly. got to do it, otherwise people don't listen. Exactly. And, you, you know, and, and characterisation is still, all this stuff is still really, really, really important. And I look back now and think, God, yeah, actually a lot of the stuff that has kind of rocked my world writing-wise, you know, these days I'm, you know, hugely into people like Sidaris and Efron. And I go, hang on, no, it, it was there when I was little and yeah. I was reading James Herriot and I was reading this kind of thing. And, not, you know, I don't think James Herriot was, saying what it was really like to be a vet in Yorkshire. You know, I, I think now, It's the seed but of the memoir time. and then transformed yeah. via writing into something. And often the seed of quite banal memoir. Mm. These people aren't writing about spectacular things that have happened to them. They, none of them went to war. It's not homage to Catalonia, no. which obviously is great as well. But it's <laughs> not these things where something spectacular happened to you and you've got to write it down. Yeah, they don't, these aren't epic stories. These are stories of people doing everyday things, like just their everyday jobs and things. And what they do is they transform it into something interesting by the insistence of saying, this is my book, this mm. is my story, and this is how I'll tell it. And you've done that because you're writing about something incredibly uh, almost universal and common, which is, which is your experience of becoming a mother. Yeah, and I, I only realise it now as we're talking about it. But yeah, <laughs> this is exactly where the seed was planted. And when I, when I look at the first line of my book, it is, my story is unremarkable. <laughs> That's the first line. This is because you didn't work in advertising. Yeah. You sold that much harder. Yeah. This food I, is revolting. But, you know, I didn't, nothing, nothing of note happened to me in my sort of motherhood journey, yeah. as it were. Nothing, I, you know, I was sort of saying this to a friend the other day, I was saying, you know, if I was on Adam Kay's ward, he wouldn't have even noticed me. Nothing yeah. interesting happened in my childbirth. Nothing interesting happened in my child raising, but it felt extraordinary as I was experiencing it. And so trying to kind of push through and get that across. Yeah, and, that's a skill. Yeah, I, well, I hope it is. And and of course, mine isn't the kind of golden fantasy selling that Peter Mayer is doing. Mine is almost going in the other direction, which is this thing is all around you, but you've never quite seen it. So it's it's sort of almost going in the opposite direction. But, it, but it's coming from the same place, I think. You're taking the everyday and saying that there's a transformative act that you can do on it through the process of writing. Mm. That turns What he's doing is turning his banal everyday existence into comedy or little vignettes that he can turn into a letter to send to his publisher mm. to explain why he hasn't written his novel. Um, you're taking things which your everyday experience and looking at it from, a, from an angle to sort of say, hang on, I can do a transformative process on this that says this is an everyday experience of absolute horror. Or, or absolute wonder or yeah. absolute joy. You know, you're, what you don't see looking at a woman from the outside as she's pushing a buggy and how invisible we've made those people and actually what's going on there should shine a kind of word spotlight on it <laughs> and illuminate it, put, sort of push down those barriers. And I also realise, thinking about it now, that I've, I've not structured it in the same way, but again, it's short pieces. It's yeah. again, it's those, and I don't know, and I think it's partly you can get far more into 
an anecdote, say, if we're going to use the word anecdote, sort of recounting an experience, yeah. if you do chop it down small. I didn't. I, I was yeah. offered the chance to do this with fiction and I didn't want to. I chose to make it short yeah. pieces. And I, I don't even quite know why I did, but it felt my sort of gut told me that this is, and I'm wondering now, it's Peter Mayo. We're looking at Peter Mayo. That that is a place that you know that the remarkable thing about this Peter Mayo book is that it is doing a transformative act on something very, very ordinary mm. for him. He's making it extraordinary, and you're aware that it possibly wasn't extraordinary. Yeah. He's doing a transformative act, and that transformative act is the magic spell that writers do where they turn experience into something someone else would want to hear. And that's my thing about anecdotes, saying the number of things that happen to you, you only have to talk to a friend who can't do anecdotes or has trouble with anecdotes Mm. to realise the magic that a good anecdotalist is doing in taking something that's ostensibly real that happens yeah. and making it interesting. Of course, we all find our own experience powerful. And, you know, it's yeah. the every day you look at your child and go, oh, my goodness, I am, you know, knocked sideways with love or I am knocked sideways with terror or love and rage. We all do experience this stuff all the time. Yeah. And a lot of the time you almost sort of are encouraged, I think, societally to put it in a box and not really think about it unless you can turn it into something. Yeah. So. We all experience these sort of fairly extraordinary things because our lives feel extraordinary to us. They have to. They have to. You're never bored. I mean, life can be quite tedious, but our own emotions are always interesting to us, even if we can't quite convey it to someone else. And I think, you know, you look at your child and you're blown away with love or your partner and you're bowled over by love. And then we watch kind of rom-coms or whatever to tell the stories back to ourselves. I think a lot of the time to kind of give narrative arc and strength to our own feelings and then when they resonate within us we sort of reach for that stuff from the outside because because yeah. you cut your you, you know when people sort of talk about things like the story of their life or whatever or the, the story of you storify things to kind of give resonance to your own emotions as a way to give them more weight i think but when you're experiencing them they, they have all that weight without the story it's only when you're trying to convey them to others yes this and, is and about, i think this is about yeah. human language this is about yeah. how humans use language we do a thing as humans that almost no other animal does, which is to communicate our feelings to each other at a distance. Uh, we can make each other laugh and cry and things without punching each other or tickling mm. each other. And we do it through language. We do it through choosing words to try and make our internal landscape accessible to another organism in our tribe. Yeah. And what this book is doing and what non-fiction, what fictionalised memoir is doing, which is what this sort of is and what your book is sort of saying mm. to a certain extent, is to apply craft to enable the transmission of emotion yeah. to a stranger. Absolutely. And with and with Peter Mayer, it's it's essentially safety. I realise this is, you feel safe when you're reading it. He is safe all the way through. Yes. Nothing bad can happen. And therefore, when I'm reading it, nothing bad can happen to me. And with wow. my book, I'm almost trying to make you feel unsafe. I'm trying to let all these emotions back in that... You know, if you were a parent a long time ago, perhaps you've put in a box and you've hidden, you don't look at it. Or if you're not a parent and you don't quite see what it is that other people are undergoing, I want to kind of, I want to rattle your shutters. I want to make you feel all these things again. I want to make you feel yeah. them afresh and I want to frighten you and I want to fill you with love. And I, I want to, I, I don't want you to be safe. But what you're doing there, the same skills are being brought to bear to transmit a feeling to someone else. Mm. But what you're doing is communing and you are, it's like telepathy. You're using language to share a feeling, to encourage empathy. What you're doing with your book is to is to communicate your emotions and to say, uh, this is a very, uh, our society says that uh, parenthood and uh, children and families are very banal, very safe, very Disney-fied. Mm. And you're saying, oh my God, it's a battlefield, it's raw, it's, it's real. You're transmitting the idea of saying, don't forget, these are really, really big emotions. Mm. And what Peter Mayle's saying is, I can transmit the feeling of safety, of cosiness, it's like parceling up a drug yeah. and handing it to someone saying, hey, this one's going to make you go fast. This one's going to make you go slower. Red pill, blue pill. Uh, this side of the mushroom makes you bigger. There's a magical spell in in a book or a series of stories that are set in the real world to say, I want you to feel what I want you to feel. Mm. And you can do that to excite someone or to make them feel raw and frightened. And that's everything from harrowing memoir to horror fiction to thrillers. Mm. Or you can do something incredible, which the Year in Provence does, which you can just calm people down. Yeah. It's a sort of gentle sedative to say at a time of panic, 
even if the situation is you've gone on holiday to the place this is set, the fantasy world, and you've gone, oh, God, I don't like this. Well, no, that's a We've big all... even, though. That's something I've been looking forward to all year. That's been the thing that I've clung on to, and then it's a bit shit. That's, and that's quite oh, traumatic and disappointing, yeah. and it hurts your heart. And you can still pick up the book, and within it is contained that lovely glass of wine that just takes all the anxiety out of the air. Yeah. What a brilliant thing to be able to do. Yeah. It's a way of affecting someone's emotions and this book in particular has chosen to affect your emotions by calming you Mm. which is a remarkable thing to try and do because most writers want to excite you Mm. it's calming me and exciting me at the same time but it's exciting me in a way that feels doable to act upon so I can, you know, if what it says is the loveliest thing ever is to be in a completely safe place where nothing bad can happen and the weather's always lovely and you sit and read a book with a glass of wine, I can sit and read a book with a glass yes. of wine. Even when things are really tough, I can take this and get a glass of wine and sit down. And that is achievable. <laughs> it's just a cut to what this is. This is not set in Provence. You know when a, a therapist or, or a friend can say, when you're panicking, they go, go to your happy place. This is my happy place. Absolutely, this is my happy place. This is, this it's is it. Packaged it's here. And yeah. no, it's not even Provence. No. It's this book. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. It is. And what that means as well is that not only is the glass of wine available and the sitting down and the calming down and being with friends and having a nice piece of cheese, all of which are achievable, its recipe is followable. The book is on your shelf. Yeah. So you can always go there. I'm so lucky. That's I'm amazing. So, what a lucky 11, 12 year old I was to stumble <laughs> upon this wherever I got it from. Thank you, book gods, for giving me this wonderful thing. <laughs> what a lovely thought. Thank you for bringing it here oh, in Provence. Thank you so much. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>